I think there's been a disconnect in our food chain that people often don't understand what the process is that brings food to their table. Yeah, yeah they recognize they go to the grocery store, trucks being the food to the grocery stores. It comes from these big farms all over the country or in the world now. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Have you ever tried or even heard of black garlic? It's something that we're going to actually taste on this episode as we talk with Ivan Sultan. He's a food entrepreneur. He's the creator of an energy bar called the Columbia Bar. And in his storied past of all kinds of different jobs, he's seen almost every corner of our food system. So he's got a ton of insights to share. And we get a little bit foodie in this episode as well, doing some some tasting during the conversation. Check it out. We traveled just barely outside of Washington State to Astoria, Oregon, again to talk with Ivan Sultan, uh, the creator of the Columbia Bar. So you're like a garlic aficionado. You could say that, yeah. It, what, talk about garlic. A lot of people just think garlic is garlic. But there's like a whole world of garlic. Yeah. At the basis, there's really two kinds of garlic. There's a soft neck and a stiff neck. And um, most people are not going to really be able to tell the difference. But mm -hmm. the stiff neck is the elephant garlic. It's got a really hard core. And um, mm. then the soft neck come in dozens of different varieties um, in varying sizes and flavor intensities with different levels of sugar and different levels of the chemical composition of what makes up garlic. So... It's a big world. Yeah. You know, I'm just kind of scratching the surface with it. And the experiment and experimentation that I've been doing has been entertaining because I love cooking. So, yeah. you know, any end product is going to be something to experiment with. So garlic and all these different kinds of garlic, how much difference is there in flavor between all the different choices out there? You know, I think most people are probably not going to be able to um, really tell the difference. Yeah. It, you know, it's like we, we know what raw garlic tastes like. We've been told crush it because that helps to enhance the antioxidant effects. Mm. Um, roasting it gives you another little flavor that gets some nuttiness out of there. Right. But my process takes it a step further in this very slow cooking process that converts effectively converts most of the sugar in the garlic to caramel through the Maillard reaction. So yeah, explain that. You, you know, I've I've <laughs> said that you're kind of a garlic aficionado. Talked about kinds of garlic, but your particular thing that you do is more of a process than a kind of garlic. Yeah, really in a way. I explain run into that a lot you too. It? You know, people are like, "Oh, what is black garlic? I've never ever seen that on the shelf." It's like, well, you wouldn't unless you had actually made it. So it, that's what. It it's called black garlic. Yeah. And, and again, probably a lot of people are like, what's that? Well, it's black garlic because it's totally black, right? You know, it, the, the, um, the chemical constituents of the garlic change slightly through that process. And um, it's an exposure to um, low steady heat and humidity. The humidity inside of the container is about 85%. And the temperature is right about 135 degrees. It stays that way for eight days to two weeks. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, you can sort of think of it a little bit like um, putting something into a smoker. Yeah. You're going to have it in there for a long time. And that cooking process is going to allow the conversion of the proteins um, or, you know, the changes that take place in a cooking um, to happen very slowly. So you get a, um, a really almost um, craft product out of that process. Right. And I've had, um, you know, black and garlic from a number of different sources. And I find that um, it comes in a powder, it comes in a more dried format, it comes in a very wet format. 
And the garlic I produce can be spread on a piece of toast. Um, it can quickly mm. be blended into some butter to make a compounded butter. Um, as a cooking ingredient, it just opens up the diversity of something that we've already been using for a long yeah. time. How would you describe the flavor? I think from my food background and all of the flavor notes that I, I begin to... So when I'm describing it to somebody, I say, you're going to find some balsamic vinegar in there. Mm. You're going to taste a little bit of tamarind and some fig and maybe chocolate and caramel as well. Mm. Um, some people say that you know, right out of the gate, people say, ooh, sweet, um, because their taste buds are recognizing something in that one of the chemical constituents is kicking off the taste buds that say sweet. And I'm a mm. science geek when it, at heart. Yeah. Um, and just had the opportunity to do um, some training down in Corvallis at OSU. Mm. Um, US, or, yeah, Oregon State University. Yep. I want to make yeah. sure I get that yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll kill you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the first questions I ever had when I moved to Oregon was beavers or ducks. I said, they're both really great animals. <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the rivalry um, at that point. But... You know, it, it, garlic has always been an element in my cooking, but it's never been uh, um, like the star. And when you bring black garlic in, you're not going to create something that's wildly different. In fact, you're just going to enhance the flavor of the food you're cooking. And in that way, it's been kind of tucked into the foods that you're already eating in a restaurant because right. the chefs in America know about this stuff. Right. And I'm really fortunate that it's beginning to show its way into the TV shows. Mm. Just watching Food Network the other night, and one of the chefs pulls out the black garlic. I was like, yes! <laughs> yes! And now, literally days later, I'm at the market, and people are like, I just saw that on the cooking show. And I was like, thank you for the advertising. <laughs> people are, you know, they know, they, so now they know it's there, but they don't really yeah. know what it is. Right. So, but there's enough that's like, oh, I want to try that. I've never had that before. Right. And when I start, you know, if I get somebody who's like really into grilling and I say, put this in your barbecue sauce, they're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to try that. Yeah. And, you know, the simplest way, of course, like I mentioned, the compounded butter is yeah. you just whip a couple of cloves into your butter, put it back in the refrigerator to, to firm it up and slice that onto your meat. Boom. You're going to be off, the, you know, over the moon. The flavor is going to be amazing. And, um, you know, of course, I always get those people who are like, I don't want to smell like garlic. Garlic smells so much. You know, it's like, well, um, the great thing is in this process, most of the garlic flavor itself disappears. There's still going to be some hints of that garlic note. But most of the spiciness goes away. So there's a lot of the other complexity that comes out. And that that's probably part of the reason why you can't taste it in like a raw garlic is because that strong garlic, garlic right. element is so powerful it overpowers everything else. Well, in a lot of those the chemical elements that are kicking your taste buds off and telling you those flavor notes, they're not actually there until you've treated the garlic in a special way. With a Maillard. Yeah, with that Maillard reaction. Maillard, <coughs> uh, say it wrong. Yeah. Maillard. We should call it. Well, it makes me think of like smash burgers or searing steaks. It's all the same. You know, a lot of cooking relies on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, chemistry. People just think, oh, I'm browning my steak or I'm making caramel. Nobody really gives credit to the to the French guy who decided <laughs> to really analyze what's happening in this food when we cook it. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of the, the cooking process changes the flavor characteristics of a food. It's like eat a raw oyster, it tastes one way. You eat a cooked oyster, it tastes another way. Yeah. Um, you still have the original, some of, some of those original flavor notes, but you build in new notes as well. And I think that's all about what flavor combinations are really, you know, bringing to us when we're cooking is 
I want a little of this flavor in there. I want a little of that flavor. And, and then also recognizing that as you meld those two together, you're going to create a different flavor. Yeah. Um, and I've always been absolutely passionate about cooking. There was a time, I mean, I've worked in many restaurants, sous chef, dishwasher, baker's assistant. Um, and, you know, spent countless hours in my own kitchen creating stuff that sometimes goes into the waste bin. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's not, then you aren't, maybe aren't taking enough risks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. And you got to push the envelope. <laughs> my, when I was married, my wife always used to joke that I could walk into an empty kitchen and make a five course meal. Oh. Um, and I, I nod my head. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, I think sometimes you just have to look at the things that you've got available and say, how can those go together in a way that's really going to be entertaining for everybody? Totally. Especially for the taste buds. <laughs> yeah. That's also an antidote to food waste. Yeah. I mean, people get what they need and then there's leftovers or something that they don't know how to use and it goes to waste. Yeah. Like if you know, if you take what you have, you can make some really cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, as a kid, we were not allowed to leave food on our plate. Yeah. That was just... Me either. <laughs> There was no such thing as food waste in our house. Um, and, you know, anything that was no longer edible went into our compost in the backyard. And that got turned into our garden. And we ate that, ate those nutrients again, exactly. um, you know, on, on the next season. Um, and I think so many people don't even have access to a space to garden anymore. Yeah. You, you know, your, your homes are built on a quarter of an acre and yeah. they occupy all of that space. Yeah. And you're lucky if you have enough room to go a couple of flowers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in that way, as a kid, when I was growing up, we had five acres and half of that was farmed land. And in our meals every night, we were eating our own homegrown tomatoes and corn and chicken eggs and, you know, scraps that were came off the table or were, you know, leftovers from, from preparing that food went back out into the chicken coop and the chickens yeah. ate that and we ate it later. Yeah. And I think there's been a disconnect in our food chain that people often don't understand what the process is that brings food to their table. Yeah, yeah they recognize they go to the grocery store, trucks being the food to the grocery stores. It comes from these big farms all over the country or in the world now. Yeah. And, um, you know, that certainly has an added benefit of bringing new and interesting um, ingredients to our tables. Yeah. But it also adds a lot to the cost of the food chain in, in, as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, one of my things has always been like zero waste in my kitchen yeah. everything i put in the mixer and the food processor goes into the package if i can make it happen i think that's happening on a larger scale too that people are often aware of i think of on this podcast we interviewed a guy by the name of luke dines and actually i should mention we're kind of cheating because we're in oregon i mean we can see washington right there we're that close <laughs> we're right on the, we're the line and usually i'm talking with people in washington but this is you know this is close enough and you're yeah. doing stuff in both states <laughs> yeah but the other oregon guy that i've had luke dines is all about food waste and he processes it and turns it and even has a depackaging facility for retail food waste feeds it to cows back in the system don't yeah. waste it yeah. you know because it just broke his heart to see all this stuff that okay maybe it was you know the date was probably could still eat it you know how it works mm -hmm. in retail yeah but you know it couldn't be sold anymore well why should that go to a landfill right. it's just i think it's a mindset that more and more people are finally picking up on well, I can remember when I worked as a produce department manager up in Alaska, mm. um, we actually dumped bleach on the food that went into the dumpsters to prevent it from being picked up by other people. Wow. It, you know, I felt like that was a huge waste. And for me, of course, I was like, oh, I get all the produce I want for free because I could just take home everything I'm culling off of the shelf. Right. And, you know, all of that stuff still had um, was full of life. Yeah. Um, I got, I was fortunate. My father had a big um, piece of property outside of Santa Fe where he did his own, um, some, some growing. And um, he was a part of a group they called the compost co-op. At the time, you could go to Whole Foods 
Foods or you could go to Sprouts and they would box all of the produce that was being called and put it in the dumpsters because they have to throw it away. Mm. Um, and for, then, probably for liability's sake, right, right? Right, And you have to sign a waiver that says, yep, I recognize that this is for animals and composting only. But you pop those boxes open and there's literally bags of oranges in there with only one orange that has any mold on it. Yeah. The rest of that bag is completely edible. So where's the pull that out, clean it up, put it back. Exactly. But once the package is contaminated, it's worthless. Yep. Um, so we saw an awful lot of that. And I'll certainly say that much of that made it into my dehydrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, absolutely. We ate the chickens that were fed with that produce. We ate the food that was grown in the garden that was, um, you know, that was composted with that produce. So we benefited from that, and I would love to see more programs like that. Yep. Um, and, and I do think, you know, the larger scale food production, at least from what I'm hearing, is starting to do more and more. And there's so much of that already, you know, cold potatoes, cold fruit, all the stuff that goes into particularly cattle feed and other animal feeds. Yeah. It oh. should be part of the, the system. Where, so where did you grow up? So I was born in California, and I was raised in central New Mexico, north central to begin with. We lived right on the Rio Grande. I could wow. fish every day, wow. you know, go grab the eggs out of the coop. Um, and uh, and then when it was time for me to do primary schooling, we moved into um, Santa Fe, and I did all of my, um, my primary school there. And as soon as I got out of high school, I moved to Alaska mm. and spent about 13 years living up there working in a produce or a grocery store. What part of Alaska? Uh, Nome was my landing spot, but I lived in Barrow, Dillingham, Ketchikan, Cordova, and Fairbanks. Wow. Yeah. What was Barrow like? Way, way far north. Yeah. (laughs) I got to live there during the winter, which was really interesting, actually, because it's very cold. You know, we we estimated um, minus 50 degrees sometimes. You don't go outside with any exposed skin whatsoever, or you freeze. Yeah. Um, You know, I learned uh, that uh, layers is the way to go. (laughs) cover everything <laughs> yeah and i'll tell you um i was never somebody who really felt had had like real strong feelings either way about furs uh fur bearing animals but my rabbit hair hat with a wolverine ruff was the mm. absolute essential for that kind of an environment yeah true um and you know move to lower 48 never wear that kind of thing um, but you know, that's kind of where I began to see the food waste because I was originally, that's where I was, I began my, my, my career as a produce department operator and yeah. <clears throat> half of what came through the back door was frozen. Yeah. Um, and fresh produce definitely doesn't tolerate that kind of a transition into cold weather, cold weather environments. Um, so I saw a lot of stuff go out the back door that hadn't even gotten close to the shelf yet. And, you know, and then of course, um, I think a few years later, the movie dive came along dumpster diving. Mm. Um, and I didn't, wasn't, I mean, I knew dumpsters were there and they were full of food and I wasn't really aware that there was like a whole culture around collecting that food and putting it back into the system in, in their yeah. own way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I went, went to school. I'm a physical therapist, still licensed as a PT here in Oregon, mm. um, maintain a very small practice and began seeing a lot of the things that I was treating in people were really related to, to poor nutrition. Mm. Um, you, you know, I truly believe that good health starts in the gut. Mm. What we put in our mouth matters. And, um, you know, I'm still out um, as far as like non-GMO versus GMO. Is there a huge nutritional difference? And, you know, I know there's lots of arguments in either direction. I don't think that that's a worthy conversation at this point. But the truth is that um, if you put good, healthy food into your body, your body will serve you better, last longer, fewer problems all Mm. the way around. And our country is experiencing a double epidemic. It's called diabetes. And a lot of that is because we eat a really high carbohydrate diet that is heavily processed. 
You know, I, offline, I know we'd had the conversation about what process means. Yeah. And I think that in some ways what we need is to change of terminology. And, and, and I see that in physical therapy, too, because we use words that harm all the time with the doctor telling somebody, you've got a ticking time bomb. Your heart is a, you know, you've yeah. got a widow maker in your chest. That scares the living daylights out of people. Yeah. So when I talk about foods, I say I've prepared the food. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people know that it takes preparation. Cooking is preparing food. Right. Processing brings about a different mindset. It's like that's been ground and transfer, transformed almost. Yeah. Chemicals, who knows what could right. happen. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, in order to make a food that's shelf-stable for a really long time, it needs certain chemical agents in it. I look at that on my own food products, and I'm like, I just don't want those in there, so I'm going to sacrifice shelf life. Mm. But I also create a product that's better when it's eaten fresh. Everything is going to lose some of the essential oils that hit our taste buds and make things taste like lemons or like limes or whatever. Um, And um, there's always an element of preparation that's going on in, in our food. A really quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for the Real Food, Real People podcast, making these conversations possible. Manny Insurance Group, for one, has been a faithful sponsor all along, uh, very supportive, and we're supportive of what they do, which is helping you protect your family's financial future. If you think about it, that's what insurance is. If something goes wrong, it's there to catch you so it doesn't have to devastate you and your family's finances. Um, But it's not just something to be there when things go wrong. It's something to plan ahead for so you're prepared. And that's what they specialize in. Manainsurancegroup.com. Check them out. Also, Dairy Farmers of Washington supporting this podcast uh, from the very beginning. We appreciate what they're doing to share stories of real Washington dairy, the dairy products, how the farms work, and the real people behind the dairy food, the milk, cheese, ice cream, yogurt, and the list goes on of all the stuff that's that's produced here in Washington State, one of the best places in the world to do so. You can check them out at wadairy.org. Again, Dairy Farmers of Washington supporting us here on the Real Food, Real People podcast. Now we get back to our conversation just barely outside of Washington State in Astoria, Oregon with Ivan Sultan. So back to your history, how did you get into all this like foodie stuff really oh. from produce manager to becoming basically like a chef yeah. in a lot of ways um you know the first egg uh, the first thing i ever cooked was eggs and it was um when i could just reach over the edge of the stove yeah and and you know then that turned into oh i i fell into baking and i was doing cakes for my family friends when they were having events and um, started doing some of the cooking for the family at a young age and then once i moved out on my own it was like how do you make a bowl of ramen really good? You know, pull that package off, but now you've just got some noodles in this flavor packet. You can make that better by putting in fresh produce, some kind of protein, and all of a sudden you have a meal that actually yeah. is going to benefit your body to some degree. Yeah, those noodles, questionable, but <laughs> yeah, um, I learned that later. Yeah. Um, so all the way around, I've done, I've, I've done lots of time in the kitchen. I worked um, for a couple of years as a baker's assistant early in the morning. I'd get in and prep everything, and we'd, we'd spend the morning baking. Um, I've bust tables. I've washed dishes. I've spent time in really fancy kitchens. It, mm. um, one of my first busing jobs was in a restaurant called the Santa Cafe. Mm. A single entree there was probably 25 or 30 bucks. That didn't include everything else that came with yeah. it. You know, it was a yeah. full, um, it, it was it was a wonderful place. Um, and to, that was probably a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't even imagine what the prices would be in that restaurant now. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I don't even think I could afford to step through the door. Um, but it was a, it was a fa- it was a fancy restaurant. We had um, one of the best chefs in Santa Fe, and um, just the food that came out of the kitchen really blew me away. And a lot of the food that they were serving was stuff that was mar- was was brought in from local farmers. They were one of the first places I worked where I became aware that they were buying their beef and their chicken from people who are raising that right up the road in the mm-hmm. Embudo River Valley, you know, in the in, in Dixon, Embudo area along the Rio Grande. And a lot of the produce was also brought in from that same area. Mm-hmm. So it was really great to see things that were grown right in our region that were served on, on the plate. And the truth is that very few people who came through the door um, were even aware of that. Mm. Um, it, it was before restaurants started letting people know, yeah. you know, Nyman beef is like a huge thing in the, in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Everybody knows what Nyman is. Yep. Um, and uh, so I, um, you know, took that passion, of course, into my own kitchen and have always enjoyed entertaining people and wowing them with yep. the food flavors that I can put on their plate. So then you, you were an actual sous chef at one point? In I wor- a kitchen? Where was that? I worked as a sous chef um, at a small kitchen in Santa Fe. Um, you know, part of being the baker's assistant trans- transformed into become, you know, in- into being the sous chef. We didn't actually have a chef in the kitchen, so I was really basically prep cook. And right, um, right. And you know, so I was responsible for all the prep that went into the product that we were producing at the time. It was like I don't know twenty different varieties of fresh croissant. Um, a lot yeah they were stuffed with everything meat cheese fruit delicious yeah Yeah. and we were also the only restaurant in the town to have um an espresso machine (laughs) so my morning cup of coffee was a quad shot latte or a mocha you know and i was wide awake for the rest of the morning you were (laughs) when you have to get up that early though yeah i mean it's kind of a necessity how early would you guys start 4 a.m oof yeah that was a challenge at my age because i was still pretty young and partying a lot (laughs) Uh, so um, then how you said you're a physical therapist you've done all kinds of stuff yeah how does this lead you now to experimenting with black garlic and we haven't even talked yet about the product that you've created yeah so um let's see i'm thinking 11 years ago um while i was still managing the rehab department here in astoria um i started making snack bars in my kitchen um and i'll tell you i have eaten pretty much every snack bar on the shelf um most of them belong in the candy aisle mm-hmm. with the uh, volume of carbohydrates and the fact that many of them are packed or you know they have they're enrobed in chocolate or something along those lines and um the the term healthy has been um i think taken out of context with a lot of stuff yeah. um so I just went into my cabinet and started pulling ingredients out and said, oh, you know, they put nuts in there. They put some seeds. Here's some chia, a little fruit, put it all together, used my mixer, took it to work and started sharing it with my colleagues. At, they were my test market. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people are like, oh, this is really good. The chia is great and crispy, but it gets stuck in my teeth. So that kind of how do I, could I modify that to make it work or do I just throw it out? Yep. Um, and, you know, I will shamelessly say that I copied Lara Barr's lemon recipe. Um, you know, I pulled uh, all the stuff out. I was like, okay, she's got cashews, she's got dates, she's got lemon in there. Pretty simple. How do I make that good? Um, I love Lara Bar. Don't get me wrong, but I want a snack bar that tastes like lemon, not like cashews. And I love cashews raw as well. Yeah. But bring these flavors together. How do I get that lemon flavor so intense that there's no doubt what it is? Yeah. And and in fact, I want that intensity to be enough to almost make the muscles in your face cramp. The little pucker. Yeah. That yeah. Little, mm. So that's where I, that's what I shoot for. I started out 
literally zesting my lemons, juicing them, putting them in a pot on the stove, reducing that down. My house smelled like pledge for days. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, so I would create a paste to bring that water content down enough that I could blend it with the nuts and the dates and not have just a mess. Um, that went over really well. My colleagues were like, this is delicious. And then I, and, and then I started branching out. Um, I think my first next, well, the next flavor was cranberry with cacao nibs. And, you know, I still went over to Washington because um, we got a huge cranberry production region right across the river and got some fresh cranberries from one of the growers there and came home. And, you know, I also think it's critical to use ingredients that are grown in your neighborhood. Oh. It keeps the dollars that you're spending in the local economy. Um, those growers are going to spend those dollars in the local economy. Um, so it's a circular, um, sustainable yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, you know, so I just started experimenting with flavors. And I, I call things, my, my lucky discoveries, I call that culinary happenstance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was doing key limes. You know how tiny those things are. Yeah. I was zesting them and juicing them. <laughs> my hands were like cramped like a claw. How many and, hundred key limes does it take to... A lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I cooked those down too. I blend them in and, and it was a brighter flavor, definitely more tart. Um, and so I started shopping to see if I could find a powdered variation, something that was already dried. And I found black lime. I was like, is this stuff? I've never even heard of it. How come I've never heard of this ingredient? And I did some research and I discovered that it's called Lumi Basra or Numi Basra in the Indian or the Middle Eastern cooking traditions. It's used mm-hmm. as a after dinner tea and it's used the limes um, whole go into uh, like stews and sauces and stuff like that to add that element of tartness. What I like to say is that it's actually kind of a smoky tartness because mm. I blanched the per- Persian limes in salt water and I put them in a slow cooker on warm until they dry out completely and they blacken during that time interesting Um, and it just it almost create I mean it does truly create a different tasting experience than what you would expect from a fresh lime Um, so then I was like I like that but it needs something else so I put in a little bit of pure orange oil um, and it definitely got that sweeter note to finish and I was pretty happy how that came out and then I discovered black garlic. <laughs> and I'm like, black garlic's got to go with everything, right? <laughs> it's not really true. Definitely don't put it in your coffee. Um, <laughs> but because I've already tried that for you. <laughs> I'll trust you on that one. Yeah. Um, and so um, I've just recently learned that when you're creating a label, if you put less than 2% of something into a pa- in, in, by, by weight, mm-hmm. you don't have to declare that on the label. Mm. So I put a very small amount of black garlic into my black lime snacks, and it transformed the flavor instantly. I was amazed. Mm. The orange note became much more definitive, mm. and the overall just like flavor experience in your mouth was more whole, I guess, would be a way to describe it. It's like now you've got the, the clearer note of the lime with that darkened flavor and and um, the dates, you really can feel, you know, taste the flavor of those dates and, and a little bit of umami, which mm, yeah. Americans are only just learning about, right? Right. <clears throat> it's like, I think they call it the seventh flavor or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so black garlic, as, and in general, I would say is basically just an umami delivery vehicle. And um, bring it into, um, I'm also fortunate, I work in a kitchen with two other cooks who are very talented. And so they're now my test bed. It's like, what do you think about this little variation? And, yeah. you know, when I put the black garlic in there, people were just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Awesome. <laughs> so now there's a little bit of that, a hint of that. Um, and then uh, the matcha tea flavor. Oh, that one's black lime. Um, matcha's, I use in a, a, a culinary grade organic green tea mm. um, that's sourced through a vendor in Portland who bring who imports directly from Uji in Japan, which is well known for um, shade grown green tea. 
And I, I think it's one of the highest quality green teas I've ever had. Mm. I get it about as fresh as one can manage an imported product. Wow. Um, I'll admit it's not cheap, but I also think that the quality is worth it. Um, and I, um, I brought some flavor notes into that with whole lemon and um, pure vanilla powder. So it's a little bit sweeter. A lot of people taste green tea and they're like, oh, that tastes like earth or dirt or grass. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah, it does taste a little earthy, but it also has these bright citrus notes. And now because of the vanilla, it's also got some sweet notes um, and a familiar note too, right? Mm-hmm. Vanilla is very common in most, in, in most people's kitchens and they're you know, going to notice that. Um, and I've had people who tell me they don't like matcha tea who love my snacks. Mm. Um, so that's, that's been the passion of mine. Uh, and uh, it, that's where I started is making the, the snack bars. And then the black garlic came up in the process because I also love fermentation. And I think we're beginning to learn that fermented foods are good. Everybody's always known as sauerkraut. It's like, oh, yeah, that's really yeah. good on a hot dog. But there's also lots of applications for it. And um, fermented foods bring live probiotics into our body, which goes back to that gut thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard black garlic referred to as fermented, but technically it's not. Mm. There's no real lactobacillus ferment happening inside of that environment because 135 degrees is too hot for the lacto ferment mm. to happen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's just this cascade of the Maillard reaction that brings that finished product to the, to the, to the shelf for people. I've been really fortunate. Um, Astoria is a pretty small community, um, very <laughs> devoted to the local producers, growers, farmers, um, and so I've really benefited from that. People are interested in seeing local people put their stuff on yeah. the shelf. Yeah, how much are you able to source your ingredients from here in Oregon or Washington? Um, when I think sourcing, I think, am I purchasing that product from a locally based company? And when I think regional, I think, um, you know, of course, immediately regional means Washington, Oregon. Um, but regional, I think also can have a larger meaning in like Montana is a big garlic producing region. Mm -hmm. And should I start looking for a grower in Montana who could potentially grow everything that I need? Um, of course, that adds the element of distribution and the cost of bringing that product from Montana to, to yeah. Oregon. Um, you know, when, I'm, when, I, when I return to producing um, snack bars that have berries in them, I will absolutely source the cranberries and the blueberries from local sources. Um, there's an outfit called Wilderness Poet that um, is a, is a distributor, distributor for regionally grown um, produce and, and fruits, dried fruits particularly, are the thing mm. I'm after there. Um, obviously, cashews are not grown in the U.S., Right. Um, and I, we just don't have the environment for that. Um, dates also not grown in the U.S. And, and again, um, probably not something that would be, I suppose, California might have an environment for that, but mm-hmm. they're deep into other things and they yeah. have a water shortage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I try to keep uh, you know, like my labels are printed here in Oregon. Um, my, uh, my, my production equipment is purchased through, um, Oregon based companies. Um, the commercial kitchen that we built in, in Seaside is designed as an operation that will lead towards more sustainable products that are made in, um, or, you know, made in Oregon from hopefully Oregon based, um, or Washington based, um, products um we're not at a stage yet where we're going to invite other cooks into our kitchen because we have limited space but once we get to that stage um, myself and a couple of the other people who are working there will be able to help mentor folks who are interested in bringing food product to the market i've done exhausting research on the fda regulations and labeling laws and there's multiple bodies that oversee that. And, you know, sometimes you got to deal with the ODA. Sometimes you got to deal with the county. Sometimes it's the FDA. 
Um, if you sell it into, I mean, you're here in Oregon. Washington is right there. If you sell it over there, do you have to follow Washington rules or how? Of course. And yeah. those might be slightly different than Oregon rules, maybe. Well, you know, uh, fortunately, so the FDA writes the rules. Right. So they're universal. Um, the individual states are charged with administering the rules. And that's what ODA and Washington Department of Ag are going to be involved in. Our commercial kitchen is actually certified by the county and the ODA because huh. I produce a packaged food product. My buddy's a caterer. Another guy in the kitchen makes kombucha. So, and in fact, he's still in the process of figuring out who's supposed to certify the kombucha production process because ODA says, no, no, that's the county. The county says, no, no, that's the ODA. Oh, man. So there's Crazy. some confusion, um, you know, who's responsible for what. And as a, as a producer, you're going to have to wade through that stew and find the person who's actually the gem within there. I was lucky to find an ODA rep who's actually there to help me. Yeah. Well, this is the point that I'm interested in, you know, taking it from, you know, for a lot of people producing food from the kind of garden, home kitchen level to then step it up because, I mean, you need to grow, you don't necessarily have to get huge, but if you want to get it to more than just friends and family, you got to take that next step. And that can be really difficult, at least from what I'm I'm hearing from a lot of people yeah and yeah how did what did that all take to to go from something that you made in your kitchen to something here that is commercially produced in nice you know yeah certified packaging or whatever you know i'm sure that has a whole layer of rules too right so this label is completely governed by rules it requires you know that you have this printed here with the weight and it has to include um a metric weight it has to be written in the right way. Um, yeah. You have to prominently display on the label what your product is. So here it says energy bar. I actually, I was just called the Columbia bar and I had to have my graphic designer alter that. So it's now an energy bar. Um, same thing with the back panel. This takes graphic design. It takes a, a, a certified nutritionist to create the nutritional mm -hmm. facts panel for you. The requirement that it has, um, you know, a list of the allergens on it. I'm in the process of modifying my package so it can be digitally printed and I don't have to put stickers on these mm. envelopes, yeah. which is incredibly time consuming yeah, and sure. like a perfectionist. So this label has got to be absolutely centered. And <laughs> um, yeah, that drives me bonkers. I'm so excited it, it, to, to get away from that. You know, yeah. everything's got to be packaged with a lot number and a, and a, and a be I, I use a best buy date because yeah. it's not, and it's not truly an expiration date in my mind. It's a, I don't want you to eat this food after this date because it's not going to taste the way that I want you to taste it. Right. It may not be harmful. No, there's very little likelihood. In fact. Yeah. Um, most people don't know what water activity is. Um, water activity is a, is a measure between zero and one of how much water is available in your food product mm. for bioactivity. So if I had bacteria in here, is there enough water for them to have sustainable growth to a place where it would produce a toxin that might be dangerous for human consumption? Right. Um, I'm lucky that um, my process is actually producing something that hits like 0 0.4, 0 0.5, which is right in the sweet zone. Mm. Um, and the other side of that was I really wanted a snack bar that didn't require a bottle of water to eat it. You, know, you get up on the trail, yeah, you're probably carrying water with you, but if you throw something in your mouth and, you, <laughs> ah, you know, yeah, <laughs> we won't mention that first one out the gate, but, <clears throat> you know, the one you had to keep like under your arm or in your pants just to keep it soft enough to chew on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I ate hundreds of those when I was a kid growing up, yep. you know, it was the ski food yep. and I was absolutely blown away when, when Cliff Bar came out with their product. It was revolutionary. And, you know, I think in some ways Lara Bar was like that too. Yeah. Um, I'd say less so for something like Kind. Um, I don't have anything uh, particularly against the product, except that it's made with corn syrup. Yeah. And um, I don't believe that that kind of thing belongs in any of our food. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's just been, it, it's really, um, you know, like I'll tell you, like the package, I wanted my package to be as natural and potentially as um, compostable as pro- possible. The, the craft envelope, this white um, paper envelope, turns out absolutely not recyclable mm. because this PLA liner, which keeps your food fresh and safe, um, is bonded to the paper and it can't be removed in any cheap and inexpensive way. The other yeah. thing I discovered, which I didn't have, it didn't even occur to me, is that this package can't get wet because right. the paper breaks down. Right. So, you know, I'm moving to a compostable package within the next couple of months. Mm. It's been a, a challenge because, you know, I got a graphic designer who I'm the first food product he's ever worked on. Mm. Now he's got some experience. He's got some new food product clients. Nice. Um, and so he uh, knows the game. He, he's beginning <laughs> to know the game, right? You know, I still, he still, you know, hits me up. Oh, Ivan, what am I supposed to do with this? It's like, yeah, that goes right there. Yeah. Um, you know, and then uh, there's different things that you don't really think about. That product has to be impulse sealed with a heat sealer. Um, I chose to put a hang hole in my package because I want my vendors to, res- you know, to display it prominently. Didn't even think until I spoke to the grocery manager. I was like, I'd really like to be on an end cap, like right here with all these other snack foods. He's like, Ivan, nobody buys that stuff. They don't mm-hmm. even see it. Mm-hmm. He said, you need to be on the shelf with the rest of the snack bars. Uh, he's right. He's the merchandiser. He knows exactly where the Crazy. product should go. You know, of course, COVID um, changed how um, how us local food producers were able to market our products prior to I was spending, you know, a couple of uh, days a week um, in different retail outlets demoing my products. Right. And you couldn't do that. Instantly shut down. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's part of the reason why the farmer's market became um, my, my most recent and, and now my strongest outlet is um, people want to try the things that <clears throat> are available. Right. Very few people are randomly going to select a snack bar off of the shelf and say, oh, this this might be interesting. They're going to go with the one before, they already but, know, right, yeah. is interesting and, and tasty. And I had one woman, I was um, shopping at the at the local co-op where they, they sell my product, and a lady came and she said, I really like your product because I can see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's like, okay, so my new... Yeah, uh, a lot of other bars are in a wrapper that you can't see through. Right. Yeah. True. And you can reseal the pouch. So. Yeah. You know, you got a dog in the car. You can put it yeah, back in your totally. bag without getting hair in your in your food. Um, totally. You don't want to eat the whole thing while you're on a hike. Zipper the pouch. It's still good to go. Yeah. Um, so the new envelope is going to be the same style, um, but it'll be made from a compostable material. Now I don't know, in fact, if Oregon has the ability to compost that or not. Right. But I'm still moving trying. in that direction yeah. is probably the right thing to do anyway. Right. So this it's this process of getting getting a bit bigger to kind of get like a boat getting up on a plane i would think with a business like this that, are you still are you up on a plane yet or are you feeling like you just have to push 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 because you know it's like you see these things and they go and then all of a sudden they take off yeah. what's taking off for you i guess would be the question i think um part of part of what it, i i definitely feel like i'm getting more traction yeah um i've been um you know encouraging people to shop through my through my website but i still have to charge them shipping and that's a real doubt da- i mean amazon has made people believe that shipping doesn't cost anything <laughs> what amazon right. isn't telling everybody is that the people who are selling you the product me as the vendor that's what i pay the shipping yeah so when they send me my monthly check or whatever it is they've deducted all all the shipping charges that have allowed the consumer to pay nothing for that. Um, so it's all baked into what people pay. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of times that's actually an easier pill to, to, to swallow when you don't see 
all of the different charges that go into it. It's like, yep, I'm buying a $10 product that's going to cost me $10 in shipping. Uh, do I really want to pay a dollar in shipping for every dollar I'm spending? No, probably not. But if they just tell you it's a $20 product, you pay it. And yeah. think, well, it's a $20 product and I got free shipping. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what's going on. And um, I do think that people need to know that shipping is, is, is not going away. In fact, if you've noticed on the grocery shelf, everything's costing more because yeah. it's costing more to get it to us because yeah. the cost of fuel's up. Um, you know, just in the last six months, I've seen the cost of cashews and dates double. Wow. Um, and it, where are they coming from? Generally, where are those? Well, fortunately, the dates come from California. Well, they do. Okay, nice. Um, my cashews, um, they come from Tunisia by way of an American candy company. Right. Um, and, uh, the green tea comes all the way from Japan. Um, so, you know, I guess you could call me an international food producer. (laughs) Well, you have those international ingredients, but then you also have the local ingredients. And I think that's a nice fusion. You know, we're bringing international flavors together with local produced products, um, and really making something I believe that's going to be sustainable. My hope is that um, we at least begin to see some 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 downward slope in that, in the yeah. overall cost. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, when I when I when I purchase supplies out of from a Portland um, distributor, it's like, do I pay to have them bring it to me, or do I just run into Portland real quick and get it? And yeah. you know, oftentimes I'm a little. I I, I tend to be. Um, I like my product to be as fresh as possible, and the ingredients then also need to be as fresh as possible. So I really keep a very minimum um, back stock for that. Yeah. Um, and that way, I'm always rotating. But it also means I'm either always ordering, or I am often running into Portland at the last minute to pick up something that I need. Yeah. Um, which I don't Pro, have any pros and cons. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I'd love to. I'd love to see an operation like Beeline. Um, are you familiar with Beeline? Mm-mm. They're a B Corp in Portland that um, is a they're a last mile distributor, okay. um, and they use pedal bikes and EVs. Um, they have warehousing space, so I could purchase a small warehousing space, and they would be my last mile distributor um, for all the retailers that I had established relationships with in Portland mm. when that happens. Um, I love the idea because, um, you know, as a B Corp, they're a nonprofit. Um, they're feeding that back into the local economy. Yeah. Um, and they're providing a sustainable location for people like me who are only going to have 20 cases of product at any given time on hand for my retailers in that area. And when a retailer calls me and orders something, I just send a message to Beeline and say, you know, Hawthorne um, Grocery just ordered two boxes of Black Lime, and they carry it there in a, in a green way. Nice. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I would love to also, it w- w- to jump back to the black garlic, um, you know, since it's in a glass jar, I want to figure out a way to keep those circulating back into the system, and I have the ability to sanitize them. So... I've seen other vendors who tell their customers to, if they bring the jar back, they'll get a dollar discount, Right. which, you know, that's effectively the cost of the jar. So yeah, I, I think it's probably a worthwhile thing to do. I don't know that I can really reuse those to actually repackage the black garlic, but at least I'm getting the jars back out of the system and yeah. um, I can find a second life for them. Reminds me of uh, Larry Stapp, who we had on the podcast way back at the beginning, almost the beginning of the podcast, who does bottled milk in glass bottles, whole machine yeah. that, you know. Of course, they used to be super common, so you know not many machines exist, but they found one, and oh. it's a process to clean the glass, make sure it's totally sanitized so you yeah. can put milk back in it. Yeah, for sure. And, and milk, of course, dairy is one of the most highly regulated foods in the world. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I have the, my, my, my friends who make the kombucha are actually ice cream makers. Mm. They make this incredible ice cream, wonderful flavors. Can't produce it in our kitchen because dairy can only be processed in a kitchen by itself. Mm. Yeah. Like, I wonder how many, <clears throat> that kind of means that like Tillamook Creamery and those places, they're really the only ones who can kind of do that unless you're willing to come to them as a co-packer yeah. and pay them to make your product on their equipment. But yeah. There's a certain element of craftsmanship that goes into making a product like this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do know that to get to a national level distribution and 5,000 case production, I'm never going to be able to do that myself in a kitchen that I, you know, like I work yeah. in now. Yeah. It's going to be half to done in a packing plant by another producer. Probably, you know, we call those co-packers. And right. um, I actually started my journey with the snack bars with a co-packer. Mm. Spent about $5,000 to um, work with their test kitchen. Mm. They never produced a product I was satisfied with. Mm. And I just walked away from that five grand because they were like, well, you know, here's this. And I was like, okay, can we, it, it, what's the next step? And they said, oh, we're going to do a 50,000 unit run. We're going to need the Mylar, pre-printed Mylar wrappers. We're going to, and I'm like, I'm going to end up with 50,000 units of one flavor of snack bar sitting where? I don't have a place to store that. I don't have retail outlets that can handle that. Product's going to expire. And I'm going to have to charge 10 bucks a piece for them. Ain't going to happen. And I was never truly satisfied with what was coming out of that. So my journey is going to eventually lead me to either build my own factory or find a co-packer who I can work with to get the product to my place. Because I'm not going to accept anything short of what's already there. Yeah. So is that your dream to get to that level, national distribution? Yeah. So, um, you know, they tell every entrepreneur that they should have an exit strategy. And um, my exit strategy is the same as RX Bar. RX Bar grew their um, company from a basement operation to a five five, six million dollar acquisition through Nabisco. Um, and Nabisco brought them in as a partner brand. Wow. Um, built them a facility um, and gave them international distribution. Crazy. Um, and, you know, most people are not going to be able to take that kind of payday. Um, yeah. You know, all of, the, all of the classes I've taken and all that kind of stuff, um, they tell you not to not to expect more than like two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars on a really good company that's showing great profits when it comes to that. But and that's kind of for the quote unquote blue sky. Yeah, that the the business is the idea, the intangible. Yeah, and you know my my goal is actually not to walk away from the company, but to be able to spend my time in the test kitchen. Yeah, creating the flavors. Yeah, because that's right. Really, more than anything, you know, as an entrepreneur, I wash the dishes, I buy all of my packaging, I operate. You know, I I enlisted a bookkeeper, which was like the biggest help I gave yeah. myself. But yeah. it's three grand I spend every year. That's a lot of money to pay yeah. somebody to do my books for me. But I'm not very good at it. In fact, I suck at it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. having somebody Same do that here. for me yeah. was like one of the biggest stress relievers. Um, but. You know, like I said, I go get my own product. I do all my own deliveries. Um, yeah, there isn't anything in this company I don't do because I am it. <laughs> if, if, if I'm not doing it, yeah. it ain't getting done. At least you don't have to deal with the whole empl having employees fiasco. Yeah. You know, right now, if I had even one employee, I would qualify for dollars from the yeah, federal that's government. True. Right? That's true. <laughs> But you don't. I don't. Yeah. You know, I don't even, I, since I don't even pay myself, I don't qualify as an employee. Right. Um, so, you know, I've watched a lot of um, those resources go to companies and been like, oh, gosh, I really wish I could access some of those dollars, but I right. can't. Right. I'm out of that. And, and 
I really think it's unfortunate that they didn't take into account the entrepreneurs are out here doing all the work ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you should try the black garlic. Right now? I think when we, we were talking before, yeah, right. um, you, you, you hadn't had a chance to, to try it. So, so I, I picked just, up this piece before. So. Yeah. So just, is there any way to eat it? Just, just pop it in your mouth. The whole thing. Yeah. I say. Is, is it going to be like super intense? No. No, it's going to be sweet. Okay. Um, it's going to be really subtle. You, you might taste a little bit of garlic in there, but um, I try to get it to a place where you almost won't. Yeah, not very much garlic at all. Yeah. And a lot of different flavors. Right? So really kind of spread it around in your tongue and let the saliva kind of open everything up. I, I always encourage people to taste it the way they might a good whiskey. Mm. You know, savor it, get it warm, and, um, you know, and then get a little oxygen in it. That's interesting. Isn't it amazing? Different kind of spicy notes, smoky, a little bit sweet. It's really good. Yeah. And totally different than, than the thing you started at, right? Totally different. Yeah. It's a transformation of, of this food ingredient. It, I think, makes it a little more accessible, in fact. Because I hear all kinds of people, I don't like garlic. I can't eat garlic. That's and, good. you know, I just tell them, just give this a try. Because it's going to give you all of those healthy benefits of the garlic. And... Um, I'm not uh, familiar with all of the chemical reactions that happen, but antioxidants are a critical element in our food. We know that now. They help to prevent cancer, um, and they also help to um, slow the aging process. Um, so anytime we can get um, a really powerful load of antioxidants in our body, we're going to benefit from that healthfully. And um, one of the key components in garlic, which is the antioxidant, and the reason they tell you to crush it before you cook with it, is because it has this stuff in there called allicin. And allicin is the first element in a cascade of reactions that produces the antioxidants that we're consuming when we cook the garlic. The great thing about blackening it is it literally doubles the amount of available antioxidant in that food. Wow. So you could almost just eat that as a component of your nutritional, like your daily vitamins, a clove of garlic. And some people already do. You know, they take capsules of garlic or they eat raw garlic. And this is way easier to do that with than raw. Oh, for sure. Unfermented, un, you know, blackened garlic. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's like... Well, it's far more accessible, I think, in some ways. You know, everybody's going to... Most people are not even going to try to eat raw garlic. And if you've taken any of those capsules that say that they're odorless, it's truly not true. Yeah. Eventually, once it gets into the system, it's going to come out your pores. Yeah. But this doesn't <laughs> in the same way? No. -uh. Wow. I've, never, I've never noticed any garlic odor as a, as a residue. So how can people get this? Do you sell that? Yeah. Um, I have a, um, a retail partner here, um, Pat's Pantry, um, downtown Astoria owned by a good friend of mine. He, he's been selling my products, all, um, the, the, the snack bars and the black garlic. Um, I furnish him also with black garlic powder, which I make here. Um, and he uses that to do spice blends. Cool. So like the local uh, sausage making shop, Gaetano's, he's actually using my black garlic in their sausage. Crazy. Or, you know, he's furnishing the product right. that he used to make their sausage. Um, and, you know, I like the fact that something I'm making is is getting its way into the community. So um, I'm working right now with the co-op to try to get them to buy it in bulk. So I don't have to do any packaging. It saves me a lot of money. And um, at the Sunday Market here in Astoria, uh, Seaside and Cannon Beach Markets, I um, retail my garlic to the directly to the consumer there. Yeah, so what's the best way for people to get your stuff? To go to those markets that you just named, where else? Um, I have a Shopify website, thecolumbiabar.com. Okay. That, um, I uh, have the black garlic up there available for purchase. Is that on social media anywhere? 
I have an Instagram account as well. The Columbia Bar is on Instagram, Facebook less so. Um, I mean, they're linked, but yeah. unfortunately, Facebook doesn't pull like my... I think my, the real foodies are on Instagram, though. I think And so the people too. who are really going to appreciate the various elements of this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, 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 um, social media is that other piece of the thing that I'm supposed to be doing as an I entrepreneur. Get I get that. And you know, Same thing with a podcast, like I should be posting all the time and it's like, I'm so busy with so many things. How do these people, do I don't know. That are, yeah, it's crazy. You know what I, what it, what it amounts to is, um, everybody needs a team and I'm not at a stage in my own, in my business's growth where I can have a team. Yeah. That team for me has been the Oregon entrepreneur network. Hmm. Um, we're really fortunate to have um, a vibrant food scene in Oregon, and Portland kind of is the hub of that. Um, so there is a lot of programming available to entrepreneurs in Oregon to help them grow their business. And I went through um, the OEN program called Getting Your Recipe to Market. They bring in people from who are entrepreneurs in the food sector themselves. They're bringing accountants. They bring in marketing people. They bring in uh, distribution, food supply chain people. And we just have, I think it's a nine or 10 week program. Um, the first time I did it, we were actually still able to meet live. So I was commuting into Portland for those. And then I went through it again um, because I felt like I just, I needed to refresh some of the concepts and um, make some new connections. And so um, when I get to that stage and I begin to do a functional food product with mushrooms in it, I know Zoom Out Mycology down in Salem is going to have mushrooms for me. Yeah. She grows Rishi and Shaga and those kind of things, lion's mane, the mushrooms that are gaining popularity. for Sigmatics has made that really big for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to, to, to eventually get to that point, but this is a really slow process. Yeah. You know, blueberry lemon is my next snack bar flavor. Mm. I'm so excited for this flavor. It is so good. Oh, and I've just been waiting on the package design, and, and that's taken a long time. I really hope to introduce that as a new product at the uh, market this year, and it might not happen. Mm, crazy. Um, they say about entrepreneurs that you need to move at light speed, and nobody else will keep up with you. <laughs> <laughs> simply the way it is um the recognition as an entrepreneur um i follow a podcast um that uses the term tardigrades mm. they're these tiny little like mole-like creatures that have survived everything the earth has ever thrown at them <laughs> because they're like super slow and slow and they can like li almost literally survive on nothing wow so my business i'm trying to build a tardigrade <laughs> Something that's going to survive forever. I don't need to move fast. Yeah. I need to move at a slow and steady pace that's going to win the race. That old turtle concept. So my Columbia bar. Oh, the, the Columbia. The, sorry. Yeah. The Columbia bar. The Columbia bar. Dot com. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here looking over the beautiful Columbia River and just a couple miles away is one of the most dangerous river bars in the world. Mm -hmm. The Columbia bar. Mm hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm named after. So you're the Columbia Bar. I am the Columbia Bar. And my son tells me in my SEO, I need to um, basically build a hidden page that has everything I can think about that, re that references the river. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Columbia, the Columbia Bar, the Columbia River, you yeah. know. And so, you know, so when people are searching for the Columbia Bar, right. instead of getting the river bar and the bar pilots and those kind of things as their first Google search <laughs> result, I'll come up there. So, you know, I'm learning. I mean, I, I knew nothing about SEO until I started building my own website. And now I'm like, mm -hmm. how does that work still? Search terms that are most popular. <laughs> Google keeps popping up a message and saying, your items are not listed in our, you know, search engine because you, you, you don't meet the SEO requirements. I'm like, 
okay. Got on the phone with somebody. Oh, everything looks fine here. Flip the switch. Now I'm in, you know, Google. And then the next week I get another email. They analyzed my site. Still not good enough. <laughs> Google. You, you wonder how much, I mean, I know a lot of that is real, but how much of it is also a game to get you to spend more money? That's the cynic in me, you know. I'm pretty cynical too when it comes to that kind of thing. And, <laughs> you know, it's like every turn seems to cost a little bit more money. I, I had a really almost a, a foolish and somewhat self-induced um, challenge came up early in the season. I was using a, um, a large KitchenAid mixer food processor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, so I, I had everything in the hopper. I went to put the blade in there. I recognized that the blade didn't seat all the way, but somehow I thought it might like finish its settling in the process it, it, once it was on. Um, I overheated the, the drive shaft and it melted to the blade housing. Uh, brutal. So I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to figure out how I, you know i go to freddy's i buy a little kitchen aid destroyed it literally in like 10 minutes went back to freddy's this thing broke got another one <laughs> and that's how i was processing my product for a little while wow. by breaking kitchen aid mixers because they're worthless pieces of junk <laughs> wow and uh you know so i went into um rose's equipment in portland i was like hey you guys i need a good mixer uh, food processor i'm sorry and uh you know that was three grand i didn't have to spend but i had to right um because that was the only way i was going to get back to actually making something and now of course i have a much better food processor that's going to last me forever if i take care of it and right um the next stage will be to upgrade to a mixer and then um eventually to the vertical cutter mixer um i was lucky enough to listen to laura american do her podcast a couple of years ago Um, and curiously enough, we both have followed a really similar track. Mm. She was a healthcare practitioner, making mm. snack bars at home, bringing them to her, cl- uh, you know, to her colleagues. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. She took a $75,000 loan from her father to buy the vertical cutter mixer, and it just transformed her business. Mm. Um, I didn't even know a piece of equipment existed that could do both cutting and mixing until I heard that podcast. And I'm like, thank you, Lara. <laughs> You've given me everything, <laughs> truly. <laughs> um, and, you know, I just hope to one day have that, that you know, sort of a similar experience with her. She is like the, the chief um, director for product development, but she also sold into a much larger food corporation. Right. Um, and I, um, you know, there's been times, I, I guess, when uh, to think in, in terms of like the brewing industry, when 10 barrels sold, mm. the community just came out and was like, you sold out, yada, yada, you know, you're going to destroy your product. And what they stepped into was a relationship that allowed them to grow their business. I think, yeah, that can really go either way. Yeah. I can actually make something better or worse, depending on what happens. Right. How it's well, controlled. I think if you are able to retain creative control in that process, in that sellout, right. <laughs> it's not a sellout. It's a, um, a recovery of all of the effort, that the years that you've put into that company. You know, totally. I have countless hours of lost sleep and time mm. in the kitchen, sweating. <laughs> we don't have air conditioning in our kitchen. And as an ODA kitchen, we're not allowed to have the door open <laughs> during production. Right. Um, so, you know, it can be pretty... Follow the rules. Right. Sweating your brains out, probably. Yeah. 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 I got to... I have to put a little trough underneath <laughs> my face so sweat doesn't drip down <laughs> under, the, under the counters. No, I'm, I'm facetiously joking, but, you know, it's, it's true. It's a... It is, um, it's a lot of work, you know, being an entrepreneur is, is not easy. And, um, you know, this, the, the way our food system is built, it makes it really challenging as an individual to come in 
You know, I was listening to a news story about why we're experiencing meat shortages in our country. And it comes down to how the distribution was built around the meatpacking companies back in the day when the mafia controlled it all. Mm. And, you know, now we have these distributors that can tell the local farmers, you are not allowed to sell your meat to that market. Because if you do, we won't sell them any of the other products that we sell them. I was, when I heard this Montana farmer, he was lucky that his daughter had some skill and she was able to build a website for them and transform yeah. their businesses to you know an online retail but most people don't think about buying meat products through the internet yeah. um i used to purchase um bison from a rancher in colorado and when in most of his business was sales to restaurants so his business basically died when the restaurants stopped producing because right. they didn't need it anymore And um, so he was able to pivot into an online business and it took a while to get things going, but he has some of the best bison I've ever eaten. And it's worth it for me to spend the money with him and have it brought here. Um, And I still think of that as something of like a regional product. You know, Colorado is still a part of the United States. (laughs) It's not that far away. No. Um, If I could get the same thing from a person who was in Oregon or Washington, I would happily do that. And in fact, then I could actually probably go pick it up. Yeah. What about your garlic? Since you do so much with garlic, are are you able to get that? So garlic's been a challenge. Garlic is a product that doesn't grow very well in the Pacific Northwest, from what I've been told. Um, We have mold problems. We have rust problems. Um, The soil stays too wet for the, the garlic as it's maturing, and it needs to have that soil dry down a little bit. Um, you know, and so I have had some hit and miss, um, and I've talked to a lot of farmers. It's like, can you grow me the garlic I want? And, you know, I get that same conversation around yes, no, maybe can't guarantee product. Um, and so at this point I purchase my garlic through a Portland distributor and I'm kind of beholden to wherever they get it from. Maybe it comes from California. Maybe it comes from Mexico. I don't know until it arrives here. And you had... A local source, though, right? That yeah. had trouble. Yeah. So, um, anybody who's been um, into the to the uh, the southwest part of Washington would know Long Beach, um, Ocean Park area, and um, there's an awful lot. In fact, they host a garlic festival up mm. there. Um, so there's a lot of people there who have grown garlic. <laughs> Keyword there is have. <laughs> really. Um, you know, when I bought the garlic from her. A couple months ago, I was able to get five pounds of this really beautiful organic, um, like purple garlic. Um, and she was like, that's really the last I can get for you. I'm not growing garlic again. And I just he- keep hearing that over and over again. I'm not. <clears throat> too just too costly. Too much, you know, time invested in a product that is um, not 100%. Maybe you'll get a crop. Maybe you won't. Yep. Yeah. Um, Crazy. You know, and farmers can't afford to have, um, you know, land that is planted and not producing money. Yeah. You know, because all those little green things that grow up, they're really dollar bills. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally true. And, you know, all these farms need to have, um, you know, many of them have built their own CSAs um, so that they can get a more steady and, and certain form, you know, income. Um, but those people aren't used to buying their food like that. And, no. you know, what do you do when you suddenly have a whole grocery bag full of produce and some of it is stuff you don't even know what yeah. it is? I think it works for some people, not for others, but it's certainly, I don't think, a system that can grow to be the lion's share of right. f- of food distribution. It just isn't going to work, right. which is a shame because it would be cool if that kind of thing could work. Yeah. So, you know, what I do is I try as hard as I can to, um, well, I mean, and I don't package my product saying that it's organic because I can't guarantee that. And I don't have any way of verifying that, especially with a small farmer. Right. Um, you, you know, I look for growers who are growing in um, with practices consistent with um, good land management. Yeah. Um, 
those practices are going to create sustainable um, food production out of their land for decades. And it's the way the farmers used to do it until Big Ag came in and said, we're going to grow 200,000 acres of one crop and it's going to be corn or wheat or soybean or right. something like that. And in order to grow like that, you have to fertilize the land in a different way. Mm-hmm. You can't do it the traditional method because it's just too time consuming and costly. Yes, we have cattle farms all over the place, and you just take that manure and dump it in the ground. Um, you know, one of my good friends over in Washington is an advocate of biochar farming, which I knew nothing about until I talked to her and, or him. And um, you know, now it's like, oh, it's a really interesting thing. That's how the forest does it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have a little burn. Yeah. Everything gets kind of broken well, down it, to because carbon content in your soil is. A, so a huge definer of soil health, right? right? It's also a great way to store carbon. Yep. Hey. <laughs> Win-win. Right? Um, we need one of those machines that pulls the carbon out of the air and just turns it right into biochar. There we go. We just have these big old bags that'll suck the carbon into a bag and we'll sell that to the farmers. Sadly, it would probably take so much carbon to make it consume the yeah. <laughs> you wonder if it would be a net i heard something like in in it might, it might be japan where they have these um they make diamonds out of smog wow they're literally drawing the carbon into this high temperature high high um high pressure condenser system that basically That's allows them to make diamonds yeah so I, I think it's just about how do you think in in different terms may not necessarily be a different solution. It just means a different way of approaching a problem. And, you know, tradition is so strong in our country that uh, I think sometimes that that steps in the way of progress. Tradition's great. I mean, we all live on it. It's what we do every year, why we celebrate Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthdays. Those are traditions. Um, But but, a balance, though, with not being stuck in a rut. Right. Yeah. You need to be able to see the other side of that valley and say, oh, you know, the grass is greener over there. Well, thank you for sharing your story Absolutely. with us here. And again, thecolumbiabar.com yeah. and at thecolumbiabar on Instagram. Yes, sir. Where, can people, where people can check it out. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. Hey, thank you for coming down. I'm super excited to have you here as well. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 